So we're in a message series right now called The Path of the Exile, and we are continuing on with that today. We're looking in the book of First Peter, and what I want to do is I just want to pick up where we left off last week, actually back up into the text from last week and move forward here today. So to give you kind of a roadmap, we're going to take some time out in the beginning to do some uh, looking into what this really means, this text today, a little bit of a teaching time, but then we're going to pull this into our world, we're going to pull this into our life, we're going to pull this into our experience, and we're going to allow the Word of God to change us. So that's what's going to happen today. I'm excited. So last week, First Peter chapter 1, let's back up to verse 8. And so we, we covered this last week. Uh, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, now picking up from here, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which uh, angels long to look. Now, um, if you spend much time reading the Bible, you'll notice uh, there are lots of times many very, very, very long sentences that have commas that extend it and keep it going. And sometimes you can almost get lost in the, the meaning or the, the point of what that, that's, that verse or series of verses is trying to say, unless you're very intentional about it. And let me say this. I think that there are several ways you can read the Bible. I think it's okay to read the Bible recreationally. In other words, you just sit down, you grab the Bible, you open it up, and you read, and you just allow it to speak into your heart. That's not wrong or bad. That's good. But I also think we have to read the Bible intentionally and uh, take an approach where we really get disciplined and we allow it to change us. So what I want to do is I want to read that text again, those three verses, but I want to read it from the Living Bible, which basically it's taking the same thing and it's just kind of segmenting it out in a way that maybe allows you to kind of digest it a little more easily. So Living Bible, verse 10 This salvation was something the prophets did not fully understand. Though they wrote about it, they had many questions as to what it could all mean. They wondered what the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about. For he told them to write down the events which since then have happened to Christ, his suffering and his great glory afterwards. And they wondered when and to whom all this would happen. They were finally told that these things would not occur during their lifetime, but long years later during yours. And now at last, this good news has been plainly announced to all of us. It was preached to us in the power of the same heaven-sent Holy Spirit who spoke to them. And it was, so, it was all so strange and wonderful 
that even the angels in heaven would give a great deal to know more about it. That's one of those verses that stops me in my tracks when I'm reading. And I have to stop what I'm doing and go back and dig deeper. And, and because when I see uh, backing up to it was preached to us in the power of the same heaven sent Holy Spirit who spoke to them. And it's also strange and wonderful that even the angels in heaven would give a great deal to know more about it. I'm like, okay, what, what's going on here? What does this mean? Because the idea, of course, these three verses are talking about the idea of salvation, which is, you know, like a foundation of our faith and, and why we're all here. And, and we just sang about at the cross, what happened at the cross. And I think that for a lot of people in lots of churches, for many, many years, the idea of salvation um, has been summarized by the idea that we were headed to an eternity in hell and Jesus saved us and now we are headed for an eternity in heaven, right? Because if, if, if you ask just your average churchgoer, Tell me, describe to me what salvation means. What does it mean to you? What do you think its definition is? I was destined for hell. Jesus came. He died on the cross. He saved me. Now I'm destined for heaven. And that's a wonderful, wonderful, indescribably awesome thing. But when I see that, and then I think about the words that we just read, that it's all so strange and wonderful, and even the angels in heaven would give a great deal to know more about it. I see that the idea of salvation is something a little more mysterious than maybe I thought it was. And when I say mysterious, I don't mean in some kind of weird way. I just mean that there's more to it that we probably don't understand. There's, there's something here. Think about this. The prophets, for, for hundreds of years... They prophesied about this salvation that was to come, but they weren't even sure what it was all about. And so I think that it's bigger and better than most of us realize. What we see of it is very good, but what if we're only understanding some of what salvation is? Um, when Sean, Michael, not Pastor Sean, Pastor Sean and Becca's son, Sean Michael, uh, he's 21 now, but when he was about two years old, um, around Christmas time, now by the way, I am, not, I am not appropriating one of Pastor Sean's stories. This, this is a nephew story for me, so I'm claiming it as mine. But, uh, and I was there, so, but when he was about two years old, thereabouts, um, Christmas time, someone gave him this truck for Christmas. And um, it, it was this, it was this just super cool truck. And I kind of wanted to play with it myself. But what it was is it was this, uh, this battery powered programmable like robot truck. 
And it still, it looked like it was designed for a toddler, but it had all these buttons on the top where you could give it like a series of commands, you know, go forward two times, turn left, spin around, do all this stuff. And it was really kind of incredible. Um, But, you know, as a two-year-old toddler, when that was placed in front of him, he was excited about it. He, you know, he saw a colorful, big toy truck, and he just wanted to play with it. He didn't have a clue at that point what it would actually do. He didn't understand the rest of the story about that truck. And then when somebody came along and put batteries in it and turned it on and started showing him how to push the buttons and all that, well, then his awe and wonder multiplied exponentially. And he's like, wow, look, I thought this was just a thing you push back and forth. Look at what this thing does. We can be in danger of looking at the gift of salvation in kind of the same way. Uh, Salvation is a deep, mysterious gift from God. And like I just said, just think about this. The prophets of God from all the way back thousands of years ago had been writing down these prophecies that God was giving them about this event and this gift from God that was coming. And think about how they were probably talking amongst themselves. What do you think this means? What's this going to look like? How is this going to change things? What will, this, what will life be like when this gift comes, when the fulfillment of this prophecy comes? So this was a mysterious and wonderful thing, this thing that you and I experience right now. And then think about how even the angels in heaven are so amazed by this thing that God has done that they long to look deeper into what we call salvation. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite classic Christian authors, and he says it this way. However little we understand it all, we know that Christ's expiatory work perfectly reconciled God and men and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Our concern is not to explain, but to proclaim. Indeed, I wonder whether God could make us understand all that happened there at the cross. According to the Apostle Peter, not even the angels know, however eagerly they may desire to look into these things. It was something so amazing, mysterious, and holy. And I think that even as we look into this today and kind of dive into the idea of salvation as we go through uh, 1 Peter, I really don't think we're going to really find the end of this. We're not going to find the, the bottom. We're not going to be able to measure what this thing is we call salvation because it's bigger than us. It's beyond us. It's for us but it's bigger than us, and it's a God-sized idea. Um, So we're just going to go as far as we can. But what I want to do for sure is I want to get away from the idea that salvation is simply, we, you know, I was going to hell, now I'm going to heaven. Because, again, I'm not trying to take anything away from how good that is. That's wonderful. We're just, we're just talking about how today there's more. And we want to not reduce this thing that Jesus has done 
down to just one aspect or outcome of it. Because what happens is when we do that, we kind of turn it into one of these. And um, I've got, you can't see this, but yeah, we've got the picture on the screen. You've, you've used these. Everybody's played Monopoly. You know what the get out of jail free card is. And we kind of turn salvation into pray this prayer and I'll give you one of these. And it's more than that. It's bigger than that. And as we look into it and we find out what it is, it's a good thing. And, and it does something to us. It changes us when we see more of the fullness of what Jesus has done. We have to be careful that we don't reduce it down to a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, when we do that, it's kind of like, this is a, a kind of an example I thought of. Imagine that you are um, in a situation where you're homeless, you're, you have to beg for food, you have no way of supporting yourself, no way of taking care of yourself. You just have to pitch a tent under the bridge. When it's cold outside, you're cold. When it's uncomfortably hot, you're uncomfortable. You have to live on the kindness of strangers. And that's just your normal. That's, that's, that's your world. That's your life. And then somebody comes along and they hand you um, a deed and a set of keys and they say, I am giving you a giant estate of hundreds of acres filled with so many good things. And on that estate is a mansion with 14 bedrooms and, and 15 bathrooms and a professional kitchen and a study and a fireplace and a comfortable chair to sit in. And it's all yours. And just to help you picture it, I've got to go ahead and throw that up. So imagine this is yours now, Okay. Kind of looks like the Beverly Hillbillies mansion. But uh, so you go from this, this condition or this state of living in a tent under the bridge to now this is yours. But what would happen if you walked just inside those gates and you pitched your tent and you said, thank God I finally have a little patch of ground to call my own. Now this is my home. I, now I have my own little piece of land. Nobody can come and run me off. This is mine. My tent's going to stay here. I'm going to live right here. And you, could, and you could even be grateful for having a little place that's your own patch of ground. But somebody eventually is going to come by and just start screaming at you, what are you doing? Why aren't you going out into this estate? Why aren't you looking at the hiking trails and the trees and the swimming pool? And, all, and why aren't you going inside that mansion? Why aren't you sitting in that chair in front of that fireplace and, and taking full advantage of what's been given to you? And that's what we have to be careful that we don't do with salvation. That's what Peter's talking about, this mysterious and wonderful thing that Jesus has done. So uh, <clears throat> what I'm telling you right now is that our view of salvation has to get away from this and get more to that picture that was just on the screen. Because we are living just think about this. We are living in the reality of the most significant event in all of history. We are living in the reality of the biggest thing that's happened in the history of the universe. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, left the throne of the universe, entered this world to become a man, born into a carpenter's family, laid in a feeding trough in a cave for animals, for you and me, lived a life as a man, and then subjected himself to the humiliation, pain, torture, and death of the cross for you and me, so that, not just so that we can miss hell and make heaven, so that he could restore the relationship of God's children with their father. That's what he did. And so, so getting out of jail is a result of that. It's not the point of that. It's just one of the benefits of that, of this bigger thing. Um, <clears throat> so not only did Jesus come and die for us, he came and he died as us. The significance of what happened is so incredible. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So a total and complete exchange happened. Our trash for his treasure. Our rags for his righteousness. And we literally, Jesus literally came and turned things upside down. Or maybe you could say he turned things right side up. Because think about it. We were at home in this world. I love how if you've ever read the old classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, it refers to it as the city of destruction. And that was our home. And we were strangers to the kingdom of God and the family of God. And then Jesus came and he made us at home in the kingdom of God and the family of God. He made us sons and daughters. And then he made us strangers and exiles in this world. And so everything has been switched. Everything has been changed. Um, we've switched teams. That's relevant, right? Most of you are going to be watching a football game today. And now we're on the winning team. It's all changed. It's like we joined the Chiefs or something. Salvation is a new identity. It's uh, bringing back to, the re to relationship where we were always supposed to be in relationship with our Father. This is another Tozier quote. He says, The cause of all our human miseries is a radical moral dislocation, an upset in our relation to God and to each other. For whatever else the fall may have been, it was most certainly a sharp change in man's relation to his creator. He adopted toward God an altered attitude, and by so doing, destroyed the proper creator-creature relation, in which, unknown to him, his true happiness lay. Essentially, salvation is the restoration of a right relationship between man and his creator, a bringing back to normal of the creator creature relation. So if we're talking about how salvation is not, salvation is not escaping hell. Escaping hell is just a part of salvation. So what else is there? What is included, you know? 
Uh, like I said, I don't think we're going to be able to totally understand this, but we can understand it better than we do. So there is a word in the Bible that if you read your English translation Bibles, you won't see, but it's in there over a hundred times in the New Testament. It's the word sozo, S-O-Z-O, sozo. And um, this is the word that uh, we use the word salvation to represent. So if you take this idea of salvation and then you say, what was that? Because it wasn't salvation when they wrote it out in Greek. It was this word, sozo. And I, like I said, it, it appears over 100 times in the New Testament. The definition of sozo is to make well, to heal, to restore to health, to keep safe, to deliver one from the penalties of messianic judgment, and to save one, or to save from the evils which obstruct the reception of messianic judgment. That's not my definition. That's just what you get if you look up Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. That's what Strong's says sozo is. So here are some examples of sozo in action. Matthew one twenty one. this is the first appearance of this word. Matthew one twenty one says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Save. The word save there, we translated it to the word save. The real word, the actual word is sozo. Matthew nine twenty through 21 <clears throat> says, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Okay. We put the, the, the translators used the word, the words made well. The word that was actually used in the Greek was sozo. Um, Jesus also uses sozo in the next verse. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Uh, John 4, 22, Jesus said, you're wor- you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The word salvation is the word sozo. So you can see that this idea of salvation, if you, if you take it all the way back to the original meaning, is something so much broader than um, you were going to hell, now you're going to heaven. Um, the, the, the story of the centurion and the centurion's servant, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's used multiple times in there. So um, pull out a quote, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Healed is the word sozo. And then at the end of that passage, Jesus said, go let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. That's the word salvation. Salvation. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about a complete, comprehensive work that was done by Jesus on our behalf. John G. Lake referred to it as a triune salvation, which is really cool. He called it the salvation of the spirit, the soul, and the body. So Jesus came to make us whole. Here it is. Here's here's the point. Jesus didn't come to save us from hell. Jesus didn't come to heal us. 
Jesus didn't come to deliver us. Jesus came to make us whole. And when we're made whole, we are saved from hell. We are positioned to be healed. We are positioned to be delivered. But the point is, Jesus came to make us whole to restore that relationship. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a teaching that I was wanting to try to, an illustration that I was wanting to try to recreate on how salvation is both past and present and also future. Um, And it involved all these slides. and, And I finally just decided, even though I've shown this video before, it just fits so perfectly. I want to show it again. But this is, an, this is an illustration of how salvation works in our past, in our present, and in our future. Let's go ahead and play that video. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. This is John writing. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, he, he writes Revelation after his encounter. So I'm going to show you where he gets that phrase from. Verse 8 is when Jesus shows up, first verse in red. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I think John just thought, that'll preach. I like that phrase right there. <laughs> and he starts using in the book, and, and there are times when he, that phrase is repeated in the book by angels and by the 24 elders. And the four living creatures. Revelation 4.8. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Revelation 11.17. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Revelation 16.5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be. Hebrews says it this way, 13, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the author of eternal salvation, eternal salvation. So there's a past, present, future tense of salvation, and I want to talk about that. And I brought the board up because I want you to see what we're talking about, all right? So I want to talk about the past, the present, and the future tense of salvation. So this is salvation. And let's just take the verse in John, who was, who is, and who is to come. Right? Past, present, future. Everyone got that? Okay, let's address this to salvation. According to the Bible, You have been, you are being, we could say, you are being, and you will be saved. You follow me? You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Let me say it another way, and I showed you this when we talked about sickness, to understand sickness. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. 
You are being saved as you learn and grow in Christ in your soul. Your soul is being converted from the power of sin, and you will be saved from the presence of sin. And just one other analogy, it's not really an analogy, but I don't have time to go in to explain all of it. You have been saved in your spirit, you are being saved, converted in your soul, and your body will be saved one day. Does everyone, everyone follow that? Okay, here's where I want to go. Here's my burden, though. I don't want to talk today about the present and the future tense. I want to talk about the past tense of salvation. Because, please hear me, if you don't understand that you have been, then you have an incorrect view that you are being and that you will be. If you don't understand what the Bible says about salvation in the past tense, let me say another way, if you do understand what salvation says, then you will have peace in the present and faith for the future. But if you don't understand past, then you will have pressure in the present and fear of the future. This is good, by the way, just so you know, this is really, really good, all right? It is good. So we have taken time today and looked at what salvation is. And I hope and pray that all of us have been able to take this inexhaustible idea and stretch out a little bit more and go a little bit deeper in it. And and what I want to do now is I want to look at what it means to us, how this applies to our life. It's it's great to walk out of here with more knowledge and more information, but it's not that big of a deal to just know more stuff. We need to, the, the word of God goes out and it doesn't come back void. It needs to produce change. It needs to make some kind of a difference in how we live. And so what I want to do is, is kind of start to begin to come in for a landing here and look at this passage out of 2 Corinthians 5, which I feel like really encapsulates not only what salvation is, what it does to our identity, but also what we're supposed to be doing with it. So read this along with me. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Amen. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Right there, that is a much more accurate description of what happened than simply being rescued from this place and sent over to this place. Okay, so, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Who has the ministry of reconciliation? Us. Now, now Christ reconciled us to himself, but once he did that, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, uh, 19, 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Who has the message of reconciliation? Us. Okay, so therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That series of verses sums up who we are and what our mission is. We are the righteousness of God in Christ, right? There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous enough. And that's why we just have to lay down our filthy rags and take on the righteousness of Jesus that's being offered to us by God's grace. And so we can stand before God, and even though we've, you might have a past, even though you might have made mistakes, you might have done stupid things, you can stand before God boldly because it's the righteousness of Jesus that's on you, not your own righteousness. That's the incredible gift. But then also beyond that, God has commissioned us with the ministry of reconciliation, the message of reconciliation, and then commissioned us to be ambassadors to this world. That idea right there totally blows my mind because why would God want to look at me and say, that guy right there, He's going to represent me to that world. But he does it. He's doing that. And so he calls us his ambassadors, and he gives us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Because I don't know about you guys, but if it wasn't for that, I'm like, God, when you saved me and I gave my life to you, why don't you just take me to heaven right then? What's the point of being here? I mean, eternal life starts at that, at that moment right? I mean, you know that, right? Eternal life doesn't start when you die in your body. Eternal life starts when you die and are reborn in Jesus. And so why would he leave us here if not for this whole thing of us being his ambassadors and having the ministry and message of reconciliation? So that's how salvation gives us power to represent God as exiles in Babylon. Somebody praise God. Come on, that's awesome. It's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So understanding your salvation equips you to propagate it or spread it or share it. Um, <clears throat> but I want to talk right now um, to those of you <clears throat> who you're hearing all of this and you're saying, I don't know that I've actually experienced that yet. And so let's just get into that for just a couple minutes. And the band can go ahead and come on back up because we're coming in for a landing here. But God has done everything that he can or will do to make this gift that we've been spending all morning talking about available to you. He's done it all. He's done as much as he's ever going to do. Think about what we talked about, how the prophets were looking forward eagerly with anticipation at this promise that was coming hundreds of years, thousands of years. 
When Jesus hung there on the cross and he said these three words, it is finished, he completed and summarized hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy in that one moment. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, those three words probably carry more weight than any other words that have ever been spoken because it was the culmination of the promise and the prophecy of God that went all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We won't get into that, but it was a really big deal. And Jesus did everything that needed to be done in that moment for you to experience eternal life. So God has done it. And and Jesus opened up the way. Jesus is the way. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And after all, that's what we're talking about this morning, that salvation is a restoration of that relationship with our Father. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me.